Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth. Today I'm joined by Sanna Suvanto Harsai, who's currently serving as the chairwoman of the board at companies like Finner, Posti Group, and Boo Concept. Sanna has previously been on the boards of a large number of Nordic companies, including Anora Group, Paulig, Klaus Olsson, SAS, and Harvia. Sanna, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. So what I'm really excited to talk to you about is uh, kind of getting the board level perspective on things like company building, corporate strategy, uh, and all those things. But I'd love first some background. So what were you doing before you kind of transitioned into these uh, board level roles? And um, how? what was the first board seat that you ever ever got? Let me tell you a very hopefully short story about how I got my first board. I used to be a CMO on, on a so marketing, chief marketing officer, and actually also strategy officer for a optical retail chain. And I had a boss, a CEO, who once flew into the, my, one morning, just flew into my office and says, if you're ever asked to have a board position, take it. It's great. And he just ran out of my room. It was typical to him. And I was like, what is this? And if he had not done that, I don't think that about half a year later when I was contacted and asked, if I were interested to have a board position, I would have taken it. Because at that time, I had the three kids, so the youngest was two years, four years, six years old, and I had a more than full-time job. But this triggering factor of him made me to, you know, get interested. Why, why not? And, and then I said yes, and my first board position was at Duni, which is a Swedish um, tabletop producer, uh, um, uh, kind of uh, all kind of things for napkins, paper, uh, high-quality napkins. And it was owned by a private equity. And, and it was a company in big trouble. And um, I was um, interviewing for the, for the board and I was selected because of my knowledge of turnarounds and European, very wide knowledge of European commerce. So that was my first board. And then since then, there's been many, many, many more. Um, what was it like making that transition from an operational role to then being on the board and kind of taking, I guess, a more, you know, big picture view of the company. Was that a big transition? Was there something you had to learn or, or rethink? I think I was very, very lucky to enter to a private equity-owned company where the board position is more of an advisor. It's a much more active position uh, versus being a very, um, you know, this kind of corporate governance old-fashioned as it was. This was this was more than 20 years ago. Um, so, so in that sense, I was very lucky. I had been first on a board that was a you know, uh, a corporate governance, uh, old-fashioned um, listed company, I, I think I would never have continued my board career. So in that sense, it was easier because what was asked from me is to bring my commercial knowledge and record, and, and bring my old, all the knowledge I had of how do you turn around business to my board job. So in that sense, I was asked to be a kind of advisor. But still, it is a very, very different job to be on your daily job and able to do an effect and really make things happen versus when you are what I would sometimes call this kind of advisor role in the board, which, which makes it much more uh, difficult uh, to, to really get your points through. So um, luckily, uh, they were looking for what I could do and what I knew very well. And that's actually one of the key words whenever I, I choose a board is to ask, you know, is what I know something that's useful for the company that I'm 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 going in the board at? 
a list of some of those companies that uh, you've been serving uh, currently or past previously been serving on. It's a huge list, and I didn't, you know, didn't even list all of them. Um, and they're very operating very, very different. You know, you've got B two B, you've got um, consumer. It's a very wide range of companies. So, what are the things then that you add, and and what are the criteria that you look for? Okay, this is a company where it would make sense for me to go on the board. Um, what what are the criteria that you use for selecting uh, those kind of companies? I think whenever I'm asked if I could be interested of joining a board, my first question is, what are you looking for? Uh, because there has to be a match with my background knowledge, what I have done, what I know I'm good at, and versus what the company needs. And if that match isn't there, I'm not going to join the board. Um, uh, it, there, there is no need. They can find somebody else. Today, luckily, the board uh, recruitment, specific on the level that I'm involved, where it's a private equities, a bigger family-owned companies or listed companies, it is quite similar as you would be looking for a C-level uh, executive, i.e. you make a brief and you are very clear what you need is uh, what kind of capabilities you need. And then I just see, is it something that I, I, I can match? I think this is very, very important for me, very important for me to be a good board person, that there is a match between this company's need, usually rela- uh, you know, related to their strategic needs, and then what I can bring to the table. That makes sense. Uh, you mentioned that one of the big differences between board role and operational role is how you affect change. Um, on the operational role, you're hands-on doing the things. In board, you kind of have to maybe nudge, influence, inspire, motivate. Are there any kind of like soft skills or meta skills, overarching skills that you find are especially needed to become an effective uh, either board member or, or chair of the board? I think the first thing is that because it very often is a specifically your first board position isn't your full-time job, what you really have to do is you have to get into the company. I mean, you have to do a similar kind of in-schooling as you would be joining in the C-level on the company, meaning, you, you, you know, I usually say that within the first year, you need to spend about two weeks in effective time, either visiting the company or company spaces as uh, which you're joining in. So, so that is just a prerequisite. And sometimes I see people say, whoa, but there's a board position, I'll join in, I'll have the one or two days, uh, you know, how would I say, introduction, and then I'll go in, and, and that doesn't work. You really have to spend extraordinary much time to be a really good board member. Another thing that is really, really the, uh, very special is that, you know, you you can't come to the board. You know, I've seen very, very many CEOs who've used, specifically if you've been CEO very many years, You've used to tell people what to do. When I come to the board position, that's not the way it works. The key, key uh, personal competence you have to have in the board positions is to ask the right questions. And it's the ask the questions, which is, of course, always the good thing also if you're in in, in any kind of active operating role, but it's ask the right questions. And the combination of right questions and questions really comes to the fact that you learn how the company is working and what's the company's current challenges. Okay, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So is there any kind of typical questions that you like to ask? Let's say you know, you're joining a new company as a, 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 on, on the board. What are the first things that you start kind of pulling at? Or is, is it like going through just the financial data, the P&L, or do you want to be talking to people um, we're working inside the company. Like, how do you go about this data gathering, gathering um, process to make sure that you get a good understanding of what's actually going on? The first thing is if you do paper research, because that usually also should happen already before you accept the position, so you understand what the company is. So that very much is the financial data, 
and you were slightly earlier asking why do I have so different boards? But if you look from P&L perspective, for example, retail or airline companies or post logistics companies have a very similar P&L, which means there are some very big fixed costs and the bottom line is very, very thin. So, 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 so that is already one of the things you would do very early on. It is clear. I always ask, where does the company's cross margin come? So, so what's that one? And is that growing? If there would be a one single most important number on any P&L is cross margin. And then we can talk about if it's cross margin level one, two, three, or four, preferably at all levels, is to understand if the cross margin on that company is in all these levels growing or not growing. Because the companies that cross margin is not growing is in the end uh, forever in a in a cost saving thing. So that will be the first thing you do even before you enter the business as such. The second thing you do is much more about getting into people. I, I love to meet um, the people on the floor, uh, whether it is, you know, whether it is in the post, it's the people who are bringing the post out or bringing the packages out, or if it's in an airline company, it's the people who are really doing the work. You need to really see the reality in order to get the perspective behind the numbers. Uh, another thing that I spend an enormous amount of, or I put my most focus is, you know, if you don't understand where the money comes from, and this I mean the whole customer, the customer journey, uh, NPS, whatever there's behind there, uh, the profitability of products, if it's a products on that sense, I really go into the uh, understanding the top line. Where does the top line come? You can't cost save a company to growth, but you can build a company to growth if you understand where the money is coming from. I think that was really um, very practical. Like you said, focus on, on, on gross margin, making sure that that's growing. Generally speaking, do you think that there's a lack of focus, a lack of understanding of, for instance, just the importance of that single metric among companies? And, you know, we're dabbling in all these different metrics. And one of the things that you kind of bring as a, a value add is that you bring that focus. Like, okay, let's focus on this metric. Let's improve that. We can figure out the other things as we go. I think that you are you are using my favorite word, which is the word focus, uh, and and that is exactly what is needed. And, and and you know, in today's world, you can get so much distracted. You can get distracted on those geopolitical things. You can get distracted on, you know, what's happening in the competitive base, what's happening in this and that, and wherever there's whole disruption discussion still going on. I think you really understand what's really important. And to any company, if they are not growing in the cross mar- cross margin level. You know, I usually come into companies which have some years behind them. So, so, so bigger companies versus versus very, very startups, and, and and you really need to understand is this company growing? For example, if I work with the companies that have brands or or are delivering to grocery retail, I have to understand are they growing with the the winners? Are you winning with the winners? Very, very big uh, kind of catchword. But, you know, it's a big difference if you're growing with somebody who's losing market share on their own end. If this distribution channel is is, 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 is not growing, then you will have a problem because your customers are not growing. Whereas if you are playing and winning with the customers that themselves are winning, you have a double whammy in the positive sense, uh, whereas otherwise you get a double whammy in the negative sense. So, so, so I think understanding that one. And in general, if I would say this way, in the board level, there's too little focus on how the top line is created. Um, there's too much focus on where the costs and the internal numbers are coming and too little focus on where does the money really come from, uh, who are the customers and consumers bringing the money and and, uh, and how are we developing? Are we developing the right consumers and right customers? 
if there's too little focus on those uh, things, what are boards then typically focusing on that they shouldn't be? What are the conversations that happen in board meetings and, and how would you like them to, to see them changed? I think it's a question about balance. I think that that if, if I say sometimes the boards have a tendency to look historic data, you know, you're very much focused on how did reporting go from last quarter or last month or whatever it is. And that's background. That's happened. That's old news. And 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 as any business, also the board is struggling to have KPIs and and how do you look forward? Where, where do where do you? What are the KPIs you have to watch, which are predicting the future best? Even these KPIs are likely to be, uh, you know, they are leading or leading KPIs, but they are likely to be something that is historic. But they at least can give you an idea where we're moving. So, 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 so one thing is just to organize your board work in such a manner that you don't have, you don't leave too much time for the historic numbers. Of course, you review the quarterly reports, you review what's happening historically, but you review that on the context of what are we going to learn about these numbers? And then you have to put most of your focus and most of your time and most of your effort and energy to the future. You know, how do we develop this business? So one of the things I do when I run the run the boards is I always divide the agenda. You know, it's a one-day agenda. I divide the agenda, which is called running the business, which is basically the historical data uh, and historical numbers and historical focus, you know, what it is. And then instead of thinking is building the business, which is a forward-looking. Are we talking about right things? Are we talking about the strategic key elements that we need to have to grow and keep the company healthy? So, so... So, so uh, you know, as a chair, I have a responsibility to ensure that we have a balance between how it is a seeing how the company is performing at the moment versus building the future of the company, and 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 that balance is uh, it is easy to spend time asking about questions. Why did uh, this and that KPI look whatever way it did historically versus uh, putting an action to how do we improve things so that things will look better in the future. I think that makes a lot of sense because I definitely have personal experience from meetings where, you know, they kind of derail into this, you know, you're presented with all these metrics and then one metric change can derail the whole meeting and everyone's talking about this minuscule thing. So I guess you make it really clear that, okay, you know, fine, we have, we could spend hours and hours on these past historical variations, but we need to talk about the future. Now, there as a chair, you have the major responsibility in saying if you realize that the discussion is detrailing, as you put it, or, or you, you're going to an effect on small things, you have to say, this is very important, that's very great, but let's conclude. Either we ask the management to come with more information next time, or we conclude we need to figure out why this happened. Because the whole focus needs to be you know, asking why was the gross margin low last month is a useless question. And uh, the key question is to ask, Okay, guys, uh, what are we going to do to get the gross margin back where it should be? And that's a, that's the same. It's asking, it's basing on the same data, but the one question is forward looking, and the other question is 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 a backwards looking. And the backwards looking, why was it low? Will get everybody in defensive mode. Whereas the question, how do we ensure we improve the key KPIs, uh, you know, when they are failing uh, or, or not failing? is putting the focus on the forward-looking. And that, for me, is both asking good questions, but it's also putting the questions on the future future uh, perspective. As you said, that small change um, shifts the, the focus from defensiveness and blame putting to you know collaborative, collaborative problem-solving. Is there, when you're thinking about running a board, um, is there typically 
are you a kind of a management by numbers? You like to have like, let's say five KPIs, we're tracking those every quarter or, or how do you think about it? Does it vary from company to company? I think it goes back to your, your question earlier about focus. You, you, you know, if you, you know, the issue is that if you in a board level have, let's say 20 KPIs you follow, by the time you go three levels down in the company, you have whatever, 128 KPIs and that doesn't work that way. So you need to, in, in the in order, you know, in the perfect world, you have a one KPI, which is like top of the pyramid. And you look at that. And then if it doesn't work, you look at the second level and second level and second level and second level. So you kind of have the pyramid of KPIs. And it's it's a very few companies you can find this one miracle KPI. But but we've been there. We, we had a very, I, had a, I was involved in a very, very big international company. It was all the ways in global. And we ended up finding, and I'm not going to talk about now which it was, but it was a cross-marching related number which was a simple uh, traffic light uh, versus a year ago. Are we improving? How are we improving the number versus a year ago? And that became the one traffic light on top of the pyramid. And then if that was green, then you didn't even have to go to the other, other KPIs. In most of the companies, you should try to limit yourself to in the board level on the KPIs. You know, in optimal world, no more than six. But it depends about the complexity of the business, what it is. You know, in a perfect time, you have three Six, nine, if you start to have more than 10 KPIs uh -uh, in the board level, you're in trouble because you're just confusing the organization because they then have to, every level has to like double the amount of KPIs that they are following. Yeah, I think, I mean, the power of simplicity is so, uh, so incredible. It goes back to what you're talking about with, with focus. I want to talk, you mentioned the importance of future improving KPIs. Obviously, then the question of strategy comes into play. I personally think strategy is kind of a, a bad word. It uh, says everything and nothing at the same time. But how do you think about then setting the strategy? Uh, is there any kind of frameworks that you have, any typical process that you go through to, to figure out what, what the company's strategy should be? I think this, again, is a very dependent about the company because, you know, depending about the company's needs, uh, the, the framework could be very different. I do have some rules. If the strategy including the purpose and the values takes more than one page. It's not a strategy. It's a ramble or a, a, a history or a story. It has to fit on one page. Uh, and, and then I tend to say, if you bring it to the lowest level in the organization and they can at least understand main part of the strategy by reading that one page, then you're there. You know, and, and so simplicity again, I'm a very, very, uh, you know, uh, fixed on the fact that it has to be that way. Um, I think the other thing that I mentioned there, I do not believe on a company strategy without a purpose. Uh, I am very purpose-focused. I have seen how amazingly quick you can, for example, do a turnarounds in company if the company gets a purpose that is relevant for all the employees and they can relate to, which tells you how are you playing. You know, it's in the end, the purpose is why the hell are they here? What's going to lack on this world? if we don't have this company. And, and if you get that right, then the strategy falls under that one. And in the bottom, you know, it's like, it's like a burger. You have the value on the top and the, the, the purpose on the top and value in the bottom. And then the strategy is in the middle. Um, and in and, and, and that sense, I always say the simpler, the better. Uh, and sometimes if you bring really intellectual uh, consultants in there who bring to you a strategy, I, you know, I'm... You know, the people can't say, I'm a blonde. And I just sometimes say, listen, guys, if I can't understand the strategy, I don't think nobody else can. And it's not saying that that I'm so good, but 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 I'm saying it, it has to be so simple. The people in the organization have to, you know, 
you know, three minutes uh, talk, figure out what's expected from the company, what's ex- expect, expected from them from the strategy. So, so, so I'm a big believer in strategy, but I'm a big believer on having a strategy that actually makes sense, is understandable, and, and, and makes a difference. You know, what are we choosing by choosing this strategy? Uh, sometimes you say, oh, we have to improve on everything, all these kind of wobbly, wobbly things, which, which absolutely helps nothing. But, but you have to be choiceful of which strategies you, you choose to get to the purpose and the goals you want to get into. One thing that I feel like I've seen among companies is the strategy becomes a wish list of like, this is what we want yeah. to achieve, but it's not necessarily a, a plan of how we're going to get there and how are our, our competitors going to respond because, you know, obviously they want, they want to grow too. So how do you make sure that the strategy does not get into this wishy-washy, um, high-flying, uh, disconnected from reality kind of wish list? And it's more so about actually concrete actions or or trade-offs that we're going to take to reach whatever goal we've set? Uh, first of all, the strategy process is, is a very, very important to get it right. And, it, you know, I sometimes say that the best process is, 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 is a kind of like number eight. With number eight, I mean, there's the top management is in the middle of the number eight, and then they do iterations with the board, and they do iterations with the, with the, with the organization below them. And then you do these eight couple of times. And by that, you actually get everybody on board and you also ensure everybody understands and has their input in the strategy. And that's, that's one way of putting it. I think that I'm, I, I, I think it's a very, very different and I absolutely, I, people who work with me go apeshit. If I see a strategy, 2030 strategy, if there is a year on a strategy, it's not a strategy, it's a to-do list or a business plan. You cannot have a year on a strategy. A strategy works until it works, and it might only work a couple of years if the company is changing radically, or it might work for 10 years. I know companies, you know, I come from a big uh, American-branded company. So, you know, they've had more or less the same strategy or purpose for, you know, 20, 30 years, and then they change some of the parts of it or, or they add on it. But, 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 but it has to be something which is a continuous strategy. Um, if it has a year, it's a business plan, and 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 business plan and strategy are mixed very often. Um, not to mention, as you said, to do list uh, or wishful thinking. Um, and strategy has to be a choice, as I said. And and very often, if you then, uh, you know, I would say also about if you have more than six key strategies, you are um, you're not focusing, you're not choosing, you're not choiceful what's needed. And those six strategies, you have to be very key. And A, uh, what did you choose? What, what is the thing you did not choose when you choose this strategy is number one. And number two is very much, so what does that actually look like in the reality? Uh, because it's the look like in the reality, the execution that actually is something that makes you to win uh, or lose versus your competition. It's not the one page or perfect strategy that makes you win or lose. It's the execution of that strategy that makes you win or lose. So speaking then of execution, because you've seen so many strategies being implemented um, at, at various type, you know, diff- various different companies, what are the common patterns in terms of the kind of implementation that fail or succeed? Is there something that you know from, like, you already know that, okay, Bert, you know, this team is not going to be able to pull this off. There's something completely wrong in the setup or, or yeah, how do, how do you think about common patterns? I think the first thing is, 
if it doesn't fit for the one page, sorry to repeat that one, but it's so important. It isn't simplistic. The second thing is uh, I had an old, old boss in, in, in the big Procter & Gamble world who said the best strategy is the one you can implement. Now, it doesn't mean it's the strategy which is the most perfect, but the most perfect strategy is actually the one you can implement and execute. And when I see when things are not working, uh, it is about, do you have a, you know, the famous elevator speech? Do you know what's the 30-second strategy speak you're going to give to this person who's like in Finnish Posti, who's delivering the uh, the mail? You know, can you then tell, explain them to in 30 seconds what the company's key purpose and strategy are? If you can, it's going to work. If you can't, it's not going to work. Um, so that that's one of the things, is to keep it simple. The second thing is, Repeat, repeat, repeat. It's like it's like strategy by nagging. And the issue with this is sometimes that by the time the, the management is sick and tired of strategy, you know, the people in the organization have maybe heard it once and you just have to keep repeat, repeat, repeat. And it, it sounds very boring and they will get tired of them themselves, specifically as they most likely have worked it a, a year before it actually gets to reality. But, but changing strategy too often is per se a, a, a mistake. And if you think you have a strategy implementation, which is one year, you failed. You have to have a strategy implement, implementation plan, which is at least three years. And if you don't think three years ahead, you're either going to try to push it too quickly to the organization uh, or you actually have don't have a right strategy because in no strategy should be able to be done within a year. Of course, you can do some parts of the strategy within a year. But the whole strategy cannot be implemented within with with within the year. So so those things would be. And if if I then hear and also to understand what are we what we are measuring to show if this strategy is starting to work, and that those are these leaning indicators. You don't you might not even be able to measure the KPI in the end. That might not not nudge first, but you might start to see the first indicators that what you are trying to do is getting through. That could be with your customer data. That could be with your employee data uh, and whatever it is. And, and you, you kind of have to put those together. So if you don't have a strategy which has a clear measures, both the final KPIs, but also the initial KPIs, then I can also see this is, gonna, this is not going to be uh, working out. Um, uh, so so it's, it's, it, there are um, these kind of things that are the common mistakes. Too complex too short implementation, and you just don't repeat, 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 and lack of purpose. I honestly don't believe anymore that you can do any strategy implementation successfully if it's not very well fixed to a purpose. How Have you found any kind of tactics that have been particularly effective or, or ways of communicating, presenting the strategy? And I'm thinking here, for instance, taking something that you know, on the board level, people are comfortable. Um, okay, I'll take you something as simple as the fact that, you know, on, on a board level, everyone knows what EBITDA is or management level, hopefully. And so they may have those financial KPIs in the strategy. Um, they may have some other buzzwords. They may have some reference as to how the market is changing. But if you're trying to get this message across in, let's say, company like or organization like Poste, you have tons of people, many of them working part time, you know, coming in, joining the company and leaving, et cetera, et cetera. So is there anything you've found as a way to package the strategy in a way that it actually is received throughout the organization? How, how do you think about that going through that process? 
I think there is a, several ways of that one. The number eight, I, I was thinking of, you know, num standing number eight. One of the key, great things the companies I've seen who've done a good new re-strategy re is that they, in the before they launch, if they do kind of a pre-launch where they send to an organization, maybe not to the whole organization, to but to maturity of organization saying, this is, these are some, you know, some strategies we're thinking, how, how, how do they, what do you read on these? Because it's very much sometimes just the wording. You just read different things in the wording. So if you send these out in today's world, well, luckily it's, it's a very simple to do these surveys. So you do these internal surveys and saying, okay, if we can say it's about, wait, let's take a terrible password, customer centricity. So what do you read about customer centricity? Just how does it translate to you? Is this the customer centricity at all the right, right name or, or, or should we do something else? Um, so, so using these kind of feedback tools, which are so easy today to do, and for some reason we do that with customers, we just or consumers, we just don't do it internally. So that's already before. So you kind of do this kind of pre-selling by asking questions, clarifying, uh, and getting them to get feedback to you. And, and when you do this, they actually come part of the whole project. So, so they have to be feeling that they've been heard and they've been part of the project in a bit of a later, later phase because there's no way the floor will know what the company needs in five, 10 years. But they can be part of ensuring that the way you word that strategy is, is actually, um, uh, is actually uh, kind of uh, uh, clear to them. So, so that's one thing. And the second thing is, is using the same tactic. For example, if you do have a quarterly meeting, so you always you know, talk about the results and you should then repeat one part of the strategy and you ensure you get a feedback. And you ensure that that feedback, you know, you can see, whoa, that's not what we meant to say. That's what we wanted to say. And this is what they are hearing. We need to go back. And so you choose to follow your own communication internally and say, did what I thought I was telling, was that what was heard? And if not, restart, repeat. And, you know, any strategy, there will be, I, I don't have a statistics, but I would dare, if you're really, really good, you get 70% of the strategy communicated in a such a way that people under you will hear it the same way you meant it. And then you are excellent. Most of the cases, I think 40% is maximum you get right first time and, and rest gets wrong one or the other way. Um, and that's just because people who might be in their 20 years, they hear a word blue and they hear something completely different that you meant. Uh, and, and it's a very human thing on this communication part. So, so ensure you measure if your communication is, is, is heard as you want it to, to be heard. And when it's not and prepare, it will not be. Then restate, go back, rework until they hear what you want them to hear. And they also can play it back, you know, not exactly the same words, but that, that whatever the intention was is played back on their own word. Does that make sense to you? What I'm trying to tell in that one? Yeah, I think I guess then the the way I'm I'm hearing it is that you know to play back as you mentioned uh, is that there's no single format, there's no single silver bullet. It's constant communication, checking in and 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 kind of going through pushing the message down to all parts of the, the organization. And there's no easy way to do it. No, there no is no easy, there is no silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. It is a Simply repeat, re-say, re restate, simple, and keep doing that for a good while. You've talked about purpose um, and said that you know it's it's impossible to have a good strategy now without purpose. So, 
how do you go about creating a purpose that isn't this, again, this very wishful thinking, maybe something that sounds very good, maybe it's highlight some of the things that are being discussed in contemporary society and how does it how do you translate that into something that the employees throughout the organization actually can relate to you know oh yes of course this is i can see how what i'm do by what i'm doing in my everyday job that contributes to this overall purchase uh, purpose i feel good about that purpose it motivates me it creates alignment uh, how do you how do you go about creating that kind of purpose in a in a company I think a good purpose is, is first of all, it's not this wishy-woolly, oh, for the betters of the life of the people in the earth, for God's sake. You know, that is not what, what's purpose is. That, that is a rubbish. Uh, the purpose needs to be, as a, the key way of saying is, is to start, what would the world miss if this company wouldn't be around? What, what would be missing from the society? And, you know, uh, it's a very few companies who can say, whoa, it's, you know, the worst would go under the people in the earth will, will feel terrible if we are not around. Usually it's much more concrete and we need to be concrete and we need to be truthful for what we are. So in that sense, I said, it has to be related to the company uh, and what the company is doing. So so that's one part of it. So, so be down to earth versus wishy-washy, too high flying uh, um, rubbish. <laughs> Perfect last thing. And the second thing that I think is it needs to be something that you are not yet doing. So there needs to be an aspiration. It needs to be something which is a stretch. Let me let me give you an example. Um, you know, when I was chairing Altia, and that's the Anora nowadays, the, the branded uh, spirit manufacturer, the Nordic's biggest fat one. When I entered there, uh, we were into, this is 10 years ago, it was a brink of a turnaround and we had to really do things. And, and it was a multi-Scandinavian organization. And here's where the Swedes come very good on hand. They cannot work, in my opinion, if they don't have a purpose. Because if you try to get the Swedes to work on strategy, they will always, one way or the other, try to drive the question, yeah, but what are we really trying to do? And that's the purpose. So this was an alcohol company very much based on vodka and very much based on volumes and, and you know, uh, the monopolies on, on the on the company countries. And, and, and uh, you know, when I entered the board, the, the first discussion was usually how many liters Cosmin Corva did we do last month, which was a ridiculous question to ask. Um, but, you know, so it was very much of a volume game. It was about manufacturing enough things. And when they changed and when we changed the purpose, and I can come back to you how we got in there, uh, and it was by the management, the board was not involved on, on, the, on creating it. It was all about this simple, and it's a fantastic because... Not very often do you get this simple purpose. But Althea, as a branded alcohol company, ended up with the purpose, let's drink better. So that sounds very simple, let's drink better. But there's a key word there, the word better. You know, it's, it's a, let's actually tells you we are drinking together, not that somebody drinks an enormous amount of alcohol for myself. Let's involves people. Drink says we are still an alcohol company. You know, we can't hide away from it. Let's not do it. Let's drink better, not more, but better. And that, for example, immediately left in that the whole innovation process was about better, higher value, costs more, but still delivers the better drinking experience versus just a drinking experience. And, and, and that, I think, is one of the most perfect, um, the perfect uh, um, um, purposes I've seen because of the fact that it so simply changed the way the company was working from volume to value to 
just drinking to social drinking, which also in the ESG world gives you the responsibility that you're trying to reach responsibly versus not just, just drinking. And and that for me, you know, it's not often you get to this kind of perfect, uh, nearly a slogan type of, of, of purposes, but it's such a good example to give what it is. And it was created literally in six, eight weeks time by the management team alone initially. And then it came to the eight, it went to the board. They, there's a lot of more, uh, you know, meat on how, how does that then translate to a lot of things. Uh, it's not just a slogan. There is a lot of, you know, things under it. Uh, and then same way the eight went to the organization, the next level, and you got feedback and you, you changed something and, and it was really working perfectly. And, and, uh, and, and the same slogan now, even if we, joined with our competition competitor and became a bigger company they changed it very little because they realized that was the most powerful purpose there was for a nordic branded alcohol company so 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 the purpose has to be down to earth but it has to require something that the company is not yet delivering that's a that's a fantastic uh fantastic benchmark or case study rather I'd love if we could quickly talk about, um, let's say, for instance, Finner, a company that's close to the heart of, of all, all Finns, I would say. So can you quickly talk about like, you know, the strategy and, and, and purpose in, 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 for them? Uh, the airline industry is notoriously difficult, I would say, uh, very unprofitable, very risky. Um, so how, how have you been kind of been thinking about that at, at Finner? I think, you know, I've been chairing Finnair now for six, seven months. I think that, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I'll take the discussion with you in a year's time uh, because we, because Finnair very much giving the change that it has to, to, to face with the uh, over Russia edge to traveling to Asia, you know, the gateway to Asia, which was the old purpose, is definitely not livable as per se alone anymore. So Finnair is, is, is has updated its strategy uh, during the summer when things now are much more better. We still need to work on these pieces uh, exactly on, on Finnair. So, so Finnair, let's talk in years' time. Posti, where I've been three years, which is the, the Finnish postal uh, logistics uh, company, I think there we are viewing that. And there we did exactly that within the first year that uh, me and the new, new CEO came into the board. We went through the strategy process, uh, the, the purpose process, and, and I think that uh, there we are further down. So, so with Finnair's case... Um, I think you need to come back to me on this one. That's uh, that's a perfect excuse to to do a follow up episode uh, next <laughs> year. So <laughs> I'll take you up on that offer. Let's talk a little bit about some some kind of um, culture leadership uh, style uh, questions. I, I mentioned uh, off air that I uh, you spoke at a Google Uncover event here in Helsinki in May. That's when I I I, I was there, and I um, my key takeaway from from your kind of keynote was, uh, well, this was very kind of clear. Uh, bold um, messaging that that I think we 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 need to hear in the corporate world, and it kind of stood out. The, the, the or the impression that I got was there's a definitely a need to make tough decisions, and um, as a leader, you can't shy away from that. So, um, I'd love to hear about kind of your general thoughts about first of all, how do you build a culture of accountability, transparency, and kind of let's say call it high performance, and how do you think about your role? as a board member or chair in, in, in affecting that kind of cultural change if it's needed? And a fantastic question. Um, there's actually two things that I hear your question. One is to how do we build a high-performing, performance-focused organization? And the second thing is if we need to change the culture of the company, how do you do that? 
uh, let, let me try to get to the high performance first. Um, I think you asked me before without me really answering it, but I think I did answer without stating it. I'm a number believer. I'm very much believing in numbers. Numbers don't lie. Numbers are what they are. And any company that has been able to, to, to improve their results have been focusing on the very few KPIs, numbers that everybody in the organization, you know, it might, you know, go different, but it's still the same number, you know, just let's stay on our cross-margin example. If that's the number, then depending about your area of, of, of responsibility, it's the cross-margin on, on, on your business, whereas the top mentioned that one. So it's about finding the numbers. And why am I so number-oriented? I, I think there is, um, you know, in the most of the companies I'm chairing, there is absolutely no, uh, you know, um, initiative, initiative plans, bonus plans, initiative plans that, has any wishy-washy, uh, you know, kind of what would you call face correlation or, 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 or how do you do things? It's all about numbers. And, and numbers don't have to be financial numbers. They can be things done. Certain date is, an, is, is a number. They can be improvements. You know, how well do you improve some things? Do you improve the brand, uh, uh, the brand awareness, the, 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 the brand standing, uh, the uh, uh, ENPS, so employee engagement numbers. There's a huge amount of numbers, but for me, it's a key. It's a number because numbers don't lie, and 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 then you can't wiggly woggly out of yourself of those things. Of course, when things like Corona or whatever happens, that's a different story. But let's just assume about normal year when 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 you when you don't have to do these changes, you basically know what you're measured, and you know that that's what your responsibility is to get to that number. That's what you will be measured on. And if the number doesn't come, too bad, so sad, my friend. Uh, you know, of course, you have a, you know, you never have one number. It's hit or not hit. It's, it's, it's usually a scale that you have to, you know, something starts somewhere and something ends there. And as you can hear, I'm also believing that the incentive scheme should be uh, focused on these KPIs. And that, for me, brings a culture of accountability, a performance, uh, you know, it forces everybody to look where we try to get. And on that, yes, for me, also the right number is always an index versus year ago. <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily the absolute number only, but index versus year ago. Improvement number is key for me, the delta. So that's about the accountability and, and, and high performance and how do you ensure. And then the board can play a much bigger role because you usually agree these numbers on a top level. And again, they should scale down as a pyramid or lower. When it comes to culture, I think the first thing you have to understand a culture that it is a very, very difficult to figure out what really is the culture in the company. It usually has nothing to do with the values written on a piece of paper or put on the, put on the wall. You know, if you're lucky, if you have good values, you only have three of them. Uh, and, you know, if you're really lucky, two of them are the real values. And then there is a third one always, which is more about the, what I call the painting in the wall or just the way things are. And any company that's older than Three years will have their own painting in the wall, and it's not always what you want to do. And the biggest difficulty there for the board is to figure out so what is the real culture, and and what, how do we find out what is the real culture? And 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 there's two ways of getting there. None of them are perfect. Um, one is to look for numbers again, uh, employee opinion surveys, um, sick leave, uh, sick leave on different places in the organization. I can tell you from retail. Before we figure out that there is a bad store manager somewhere, we can see that the uh, sickness rates goes up. Happens every time, uh, by the way. Uh, and then there is, in the other hand, just going to the organization and asking questions. 
uh, and actually even better asking the organization to ask you questions. One of the things that I do when I only can is to meet with the employee representatives, you know, the union members. And I tell them, I have nothing to tell you, but I'm here to listen to you. And if they start to ask you a question, which you're thinking, wow, why are they asking me this question? There is usually a reason for that one. And you have to be very, very carefully listening, understanding if that's what they are asking and you think they should not ask that, then there's something wishy-washy going on. And usually it, it goes back on the cultural way of, of working together. That would be my kind of, on the accountability, the other hand, on the, on the culture. And changing a culture takes at least three years. Uh, and again, it's a one-by-one-by-one by one way of doing it. But, but culture changes uh, under three years are not possible. And even if you do it in three years, your masterpiece, I would say normally it takes about five plus years. Obviously, I think cultures, at least on the surface level, will look very different depending on the companies. Companies are so, so different. But is there anything kind of uh, common denominators that you always focus on? Is it, again, like that focus on numbers and letting the numbers drive the business and and uh, the, the incentives? Uh, are the kind of common patterns that you always try to make sure are found in that culture? I, I'm very much usually looking the, and if there, first of all, I, I'm a big believer of, 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 um, of employee opinion service, but a number I'm looking is engagement. Um, it's not about ENPS because that's about, do I recommend it for outside? And, and sometimes there are companies where people really like to work, but they don't want to tell it to outsiders that I'm working there. Uh, which is quite funny. Uh, but that case, the engagement, am I engaged to my work is the key number for me. Um, uh, and that the first thing of that engagement number is how many people responded to an employee opinion survey. And and just recently, I was working with a much smaller company and they were so proud. It was our first employee opinion survey and we got a 68% re response rate. I said, rubbish. You know, I have a company with several thousand employees with people located all over the world. And I get a mix, you know, if I get a rate which is under 70, 75, you know, they have to just basically redo it because the fact that people are not even engaged enough to fill the survey tells you a lot about engagement. Um, so, so it's these kind of things you learn uh, while being involved in so many companies that you have to watch very much about the, the, the real top numbers uh, on that sense. Uh, then I think the most difficult thing is that is to measure is a trust and trust is the key thing in there and usually you cannot measure trust per se for a whole company because you know it's sometimes really funny you might see that you trust your closest management but you don't trust the company or the top management and in the end it's the closest management that counts however if that's the case then you also have an issue so, so anything that can uh, tell you about the trust, and you, you can't, if you can't kind of ask, do you trust people? Or do you trust your management? But there is a ways of working and, and seeing, you know, do, 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 do you believe your management is doing everything you, you, they should to ensure the, uh, you know, um, happiness in the workplace or, or, or things like these? And, and those kind of questions will tell you uh, a lot about the management. Uh, peer trust, no trust uh, doesn't work. Same way as I always say, if people don't answer to the question, am I paid enough, which word no, then there's too much stupid people in the organization. Uh, and, and thus you have to read these numbers sometimes with a, with a, with a, 
with, with the perspective that you learn that, that they should always be. If, the, if everybody says, great, I'm well paid, oh, then you're most likely paying too much. Yeah, that's uh, I, I completely completely agree. Um, it, it was just so interesting because a lot of the things that you are talking about are things that I would think are not very obvious or intuitive. So it really requires that experience. You have to have been in a number yeah. of organizations and seen the same thing and, and been like, oh, there's a pattern. I want to go back to the hard decisions because I feel like that's something that's really important. I'll put two things, two things out there for you. Uh, number one was I found one of your favorite political quotes. It's from Jean-Claude Juncker. Uh, says, quote, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get reelected once we have done it. That's number one. The number second thing is a story I remember reading about Carl Icahn, the famous activist investor uh, who goes on boards and shakes things up. He 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 was on a board, I forget, some kind of company. Uh, the CEO came in the board meeting, presented this acquisition that he wanted to do. Um, the other board members were kind of nodding off and everyone, no one spoke up. Everyone was going to going to uh, vote it through. So Carl speaks up last. He says, this is the world's worst deal I've ever seen. And if you board members, um, you know, approve this deal, you're all going to get sued because it's basically a breach of your fiduciary responsibility. So the board shuts it down. Um, but he had he not been there, the CEO would have made the acquisition of this terrible business that was unprofitable and so on and so forth. How do you go about actually creating, creating that kind of culture that takes those hard decisions? Is it a matter of incentives? Is it a matter of personality? If it's a matter of personality, how do you develop it? That's a bit broad question. Uh, yeah, it's, but... it's, it's, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's a very broad question. It's, it's a very good question. It's a difficult question also because, because in the end, um, you know, uh, I think the toughest discussions are or the decisions are not about money, I, I tend to, to say. Because, you know, if you see this kind of, if you take the second example you had about buying something, Usually, you very seldom a board would not to a purchase which is off strategy. What usually happens is you either are paying too much for the thing, which in that case comes a shitty thing because you paid too much for whatever you were buying, or you haven't been thinking about through the what happens afterwards. You know, you know, people get sometimes so excited of buying a company that they don't really think about then what in earth happens when we have bought it. How does the new company look like? And you have to think that before you end up buying the company, because that might be the biggest reason you don't buy the company is you just say, whoa, this will not work together. And, and, and you know, 60% of the M&As, and this is another question of, of just learning by doing too many things, of, uh, too many times these things, 60% of the M&As don't bring any, any value for the company. So reason he was most likely saying it because he had the knowledge that 60% cases is not, and then that helps bringing that kind of data into the board helps the boards to say, is this going to be one of, it's going to be the 60% or 40% case. And what, what does it need to be to make it a 40%, i.e. the successful case versus the unsuccessful case. So some of it's just purely, you know, bringing up and saying, um, saying, what do we do on, on lemonade? So I'll come back to you on the other part. Lemonade is actually the best tool I have is a pre-mortem. And every time we do an investment in the companies I'm chairing, we have a post-mortem, which means 18 months after the investment have been done, we look whether it actually lived up to the discussion or on the, it ended up, lived up to the initial investment uh, uh, investment uh, um, proposal. Uh, and when you'll do them for a while, you'll learn that all the companies have a habit either being too enthusiastic or too pessimistic. And, and then you just learn that and you can bring it into your new, 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 new thing. 
But if you do a pre-mortem, that actually means, okay, guys, if we're going to buy this and we're going to do this acquisition, if we're going to do any big moves, what will it look like when we are on the other side and what can go wrong? And, and, and keeping that kind of discussion opens you to not do this, do we buy or not to buy, but it actually opens you to a discussions which then might kind of come back to you and saying, well, we didn't think about that one, but if we buy that, the competition do that, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, sometimes it ends up you're not going to buy it. And sometimes it just ends up we're going to buy it differently or with different price or whatever it is. So so this experience and bringing the different perspective and, and specifically this back to future and back, you know, this future and back plan, how does it look like? What's the pre-mortem? How does it, how does the future look like? Is a very effective way of, 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 of changing the, the, the discussion on that sense. But the biggest, as I said to you, the most difficult questions and decisions are about people. It's about changing people. It's about uh, changing organization. It's about closing factories because closing factories is not about closing the site, physical site. It's about letting, you know, changing a lot of uh, lives of a lot of people. These are the most difficult discussions. And, and and usually on these ones, a bit similar method works. But in the end, you have to, I think the key thing on those decisions is you have to put yourself a, 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 a back end. And let me put it this way. Very often when I talk with the CEOs, they might see that somebody is not performing. And then they say, ah, but this is not performing. And the first discussion you have is about how do we improve this person's performance or how do we improve that factory's performance? And after a while, the biggest mistake you make is you keep, you, you stay on this, can we improve the person or the factory or the unit discussion? Whereas you should to yourself, you say, in people, usually I say, let's give us ourselves maximum nine months. And in nine months, we have to decide if this person is in or out. Uh, and, 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 and that discussion is something that A, I've never been in a situation when somebody says, oh, we fired somebody too early. That has never happened. Uh, and that is actually the key thing is to be timely and, 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 and understand the bottlenecks. And they, these might be a persons who've been perfect in the organization for the last five years, but while the organization grows, they simply don't have it what it takes to take the next five years. And, and these discussions um, happen very often between the chair and the CEO. And CEO is the loneliest place in the world <laughs> as a position. And there, a chair that you can take this very difficult discussion is key. And then the same way of escalating through the organization that everybody has somebody in the organization that they can take these difficult discussions because this difficult discussion happens in every level. I don't know if I was answered your question, but that's what I get out of these two things. No, you answered it perfectly. And I think that it feels to me that this is actually the most needed thing. It's not about, we talked a lot about strategy. Ultimately, I feel like strategy is for relatively easy, but it becomes impossible if you're not willing to have hard conversations or make hard decisions. Then strategy, I mean, it doesn't matter. That you could have the best strategy in the world, but it's not going to be implemented. It's a la-la land strategy. And la-la land strategy, you know, the, 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 the uh, fa uh, the fairy fairy tale world everything is possible and everybody can be improved but in reality I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they try to be nice and you should not be nice you should be kind and and being a kind for example in the personal reviews is to ensure you're truthful to the person's performance 
because nobody feels good staying too long in the position where they don't fulfill what they were supposed to do. And it's better. It's more, it's, it's kinder. It's, it's, it's a better to take the tough decision and ensure that you both go to your ways. That's kind to the person you're doing. You, you're actually taking care of the person by being kind. By being nice, you very often avoid the tough discussion. I love that. I completely agree. Um, I could continue for forever, but you know, it's, we're running out of time. So uh, final question, uh, a bit of a selfish one. Do you have any recommendations in terms of books or resources that you found especially effective when it comes to learning um, how to effectively manage all these different types of uh, businesses? I think you are, you are now talking to a huge Aura fan here. So there is this book, which is called Why Do We Sleep? Uh, I truly believe that sleep, uh, it was actually also advice I was giving to one of my bosses. And let me maybe tell that story to the end. He said to me, I'm now going to give you one when we stop working together. And I said, no, I'm not going to give you an advice and I know you're going to get angry to me when I give you that advice. And I was like, whoa, that's a way to introduce a, 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 a last words. But, but he said, listen, sleep on it. And, and, and his point was, and he said to me very well, Sana, you're very quick, you can do the analysis, but sometimes you need to sleep on it in order to find a way to do that analysis or explain that analysis to the rest of the organization in such a way that they can actually be with you. So his point was sleep on it. And he was so right. I first got annoyed. I'm saying, what do you think? Am I stupid? Do I have to sleep on things? But he was so right. Uh, usually very few things, there are things that require immediate action today, but those are urgent things. Something is in fire. Somebody's life is in danger or something really bad has happened. Most of the thing in the business world can wait until tomorrow morning. And on that one, why do we sleep is one of the best books that I have read for several, several years. Uh, uh, it, it talks about it's it's a it's, it talks about the importance of sleep, and it talks about why sleep is a very important both solving problems, but also versus the huge mental problem we have at the moment with world with people not feeling very good. It's the mental sickness. It's not breaking the legs or bags, which is the problem now. It's it's breaking the head, which is a problem. So that would be one thing. The second thing that I would say. Um, uh, I'm not a big believer on all the business books because sometimes or very often it's the uh, same wine in a new bottle or even worse, the same bottle, but it's, it's really in that sense. I think that all the business people do very well of reading some non-fiction, uh, preferably historical non-fiction. Um, I also say that my favorite um, business book ever all time is Winnie the Pooh. Read the first page of Winnie the Pooh and you'll get an answer to a lot of lot of questions and problems in the world. It's a good takeaway. Um, we've covered everything from corporate strategy to Winnie the Pooh. So I, um, it's, it's been, a, Sana, it's been a real, real, real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom so transparently. Uh, I will take you up on that offer to do a, a follow-up uh, follow conversation because I've got uh, tons more questions. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. And uh, for people who want to follow you, um, is it the LinkedIn? Are you active on Twitter? Both, both. We're more active in LinkedIn nowadays than Twitter, and Twitter more following nowadays. But uh, but LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn is, I think, the best way of figuring out what's going on. And occasionally, uh, I know that there's uh, interviews coming out, articles um, where you you share some of your perspectives. So 
can, can people can look out for that as well. But um, yes, I'll put those links in, in, in the show notes. Sanna, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts.